Hello. Today we're going to do a podcast on a sum up from the CSM session on management of atypical vestibular disorders beyond BPPV, vestibular neuritis, and acoustic neuroma. My name is Rachel Tromlin. I'm Assistant Professor of Physical Therapy at LSU Health Sciences Center in New Orleans, and I'm on with Laura Morris and Janine Holmberg, who will be speaking later. The reason we chose this topic for CSM was that we are all very familiar with vestibular therapists at working with more straightforward patients. And there's really good research out there on what to do. But what do, what do we do when we get sort of those oddball cases or those more atypical cases? And how do we problem solve? And how do we figure out what to do with the patients? One of the first things that I usually do is I will try to ask colleagues for help. But I know a lot of times in vestibular rehab, you may only have one colleague or no colleague at all doing that. The other thing that I would usually do is go looking at the literature, but again, in a complex case, there may be no literature existing supporting what we do. So the dual purpose today is to highlight some cases on a problem-solving algorithm and to also provide you guys with a little bit of a framework on what to do and how to solve through these difficult cases. First case I'm going to talk about is a patient I had a few years ago who was referred from a neuroautologist with a diagnosis of migraine-associated dizziness versus Meniere's. She's a 49-year-old female presenting with gradual onset of dizziness, nausea, and imbalance, which has progressively worsened over the past six months. She does have a past medical history of migraines and premenstrual dysmorphic disorder. Her symptoms she report as occurring in hours occurring one to two times per week, but she's nauseous daily. And she describes the symptoms as wooziness, unsettled, and unsteady, and describes blurry vision, plus imbalance and near falls, but without falls, and having pressure and ringing in the ears bilaterally intermittently. When I performed her ocular motor test, all bedside tests were negative, except she had a positive right head thrust test and VOR dysfunction, excuse me, that's positive left head thrust. And Hall-Pike-Dick's roll tests were negative. Her VNG findings revealed abnormal ECOGs in the left ear, which is suggestive of high drops, and abnormal VEMPs in the left ear with oscillopsia. Her balance and gait measures, her ABC was 73%. Static balance were um, modified sit-sib, single leg stance, Romberg and sharp Romberg eyes open were 30 seconds, and she was able to hold Romberg eyes closed 30 seconds and sharp Romberg eyes closed 15 seconds, FGA 27 out of 30, gait speed 3.85 feet per second. So you can see fairly typical unilateral vestibular hypofunction. She's a mother to a 17-year-old son, owned a boutique shop, and lives in a one-story home. Her activity limitations were she could not walk in a dark room. She was more careful on ladders. She reported lingering in bed longer and having more symptoms at work. And she was self-limiting her driving. She could, but she chose not to um, because she just felt uncomfortable driving longer distances. And her goals were to feel better. So this presentation I thought was very consistent with both parts of migraine and Meniere's, and I thought that she would benefit from vestibular rehab. I performed VOR and balance exercises with her. She came in once a week, and she performed the exercises at home. And she had minimal improvement over those two sessions. But in that time, she had further workup, a CAT scan, which revealed a superior semicircular canal dehiscence, to which the physician recommended that she be discharged from physical therapy and that she receive surgical treatment. So what is a superior semicircular canal dehiscence? This is a small hole that develops in the superior temporal bone, superior to the semicircular 
canal. And the semicircular canal will move into this hole and the jagged edges of the hole in the temporal bone cause the canal to rip. And this is due to either genetic causes or maybe trauma. And the result of this is it creates a third mobile window which makes the ear Increased, have increased sensitivity to sound and pressure changes. And it is a relatively new diagnosis being first described in 1998. So some of the signs that you may see are vertical and torsional eye movement with sound or pressure induced symptoms. Obviously you would need um, infrared goggles to look at this. You will see of course CT scan abnormalities. You may see lower level of VEMPs and you may see a positive web Weber test in the affected ear, and the patient may complain of autophony, which is that their voice sounds louder to themselves. And some of the symptoms, um, maybe patients report oscillopsy and dizziness induced by loud sounds, and patients will report a history of symptoms with a vigorous valsalva. And the VEMPs that are used to test with this are um, cervical VEMPs or I'm sorry, ocular vents, which test the utricle and superior, um, I'm sorry, cervical vents, which test the inferior vestibular nerve and the saccule. And the results with the fistula will demonstrate an increased amplitude indicating involvement in the left, in the, I'm sorry, will demonstrate a decreased amplitude um, or increased amplitude at a lower level. The clinical classification, our patients can have both cochlear and vestibular signs, which it occurs in most patients, and that is attributed to a larger semicircular canal dehiscence, and that's patients who complain of auditory and dizziness symptoms. Patients can also complain of auditory symptoms only or dizziness symptoms only, but that's a smaller. And research has demonstrated that the size of semicircular canal dehiscence um, corresponds with the symptom description and symptom severity, and also the degree of dizziness. The larger the size of the dehiscence, the more likely a patient is to have unilateral hypofunction. There is a good article done by Jenke in 2012 which examined the balance of vestibular loss and the recovery patients have status post-canal plugging to treat semicircular canal dehiscence. The surgical treatment most often used is a canal plugging. Um, they looked at patients' balance both pre-op, one-week post-op, and six weeks post-op, or, or a greater interval, and they found that dynamic balance was impaired post-operatively, but did recover by six weeks, and they found that the presence of a positive head thrust um, was present post-operatively and at six weeks, um, and they did find that the patient had spontaneous and or post-shaking head nystagmus one week after surgery, and that can be indicative of the peripheral system dysfunction. So the big take-home message with this study is that patients have deficits in balance and vestibular function, which make them ideal candidates for vestibular rehab. And so this patient came back to me after four months about after surgery, and she her symptoms have changed at that time. At that time, her symptoms were only occurring in seconds and being provoked um, whenever she did provoking motions, such as turning the head or doing quick body terms, which would be very typical of a unilateral vestibular lesion. She continued to complain of blurry vision when walking or with head turns and having imbalance without falls or near falls. At this time, she was not working. She closed her store, partially due to the surgery, but partially due to other personal things. She was not driving, and she was not doing as many things around her house, less cooking, increased fatigue, and she was in the process of moving, um, which was very stressful for her at this time. She had also gained 30 pounds since discharge from physical therapy and was very interested to start a fitness routine with a trainer for weight loss, but wanting to have her symptoms better.
So her re-eval findings were very um, similar to her other eval findings, and I'll just highlight the important ones, where her FGA was much less at a 23 out of 30, and gait speed at less at 3.23 feet per second. And similar interventions I would do would be what you would do for unilateral vestibular hypofunction, VOR in sitting, standing, Romberg, walking forwards and walking backwards, balance training with head turns on a variety of surfaces, with eyes open, with eyes closed. She also did optokinetic stimulation, and I did habituation turns both with and without a ball toss. She attended physical therapy for 10 visits over 10 weeks. Her discharge findings, her FGA improved to a 29 out of 30, ABC at an 86.9%, and gait speed at 3.89 feet per second. And most importantly, she was able to drive 15 minutes without symptoms, able to work out with her trainer at the gym without symptoms, and she resumed all ADLs and household chores without dizziness. I was also lucky to have another case of a patient who was a 41-year-old female um, who complained of these symptoms. And she was very aggressive about starting therapy early because she was about to go on a vacation. So I saw her before she had the full workup. And she complained about having constant symptoms, being described as a bobblehead feeling, feeling inertia, um, having imbalance without falls, and having kind of a pulsatile sensation in her inner ear. All of her bedside ocular motor tests were negative except for a positive right head thrust test and VOR dysfunction. VOR times one elicited mild symptoms and hall pike sticks and roll tests were negative. Objectively, her balance looked pretty good. She was a former gymnast and she was um, 41 years old, so ABC at 80%, FGA 26 out of 30, gait speed at 3.57 feet per second, SVQ was a little high at 2.35, her DHI was 40 out of 100. Um, she's a wife and a mother to a three-year-old son, and she planned to start work in about three to four weeks she had been taken off um, to care for her son since he was born. And she has stopped walking, stopped doing yoga, and limited her driving, and her goal was to not be dizzy. And I knew the diagnosis I got from the physician was vestibular neuritis or Meniere's, and she didn't quite fit into either of those two categories. But what I did know I was working with was a unilateral lesion. It appeared to be stable, so I thought, let's kind of start a program and monitor and refer back to the physician as necessary. As luck would have it, after about two weeks, she had a CT scan which revealed a semicircular canal dehiscence. It was very small, so the physician opted for conservative management with vestibular rehab rather than having the patient go under for surgery. So totally, I continued with the full VOR and balance exercise program progression, followed by four weeks of optokinetic stimulation, and she attended eight sessions over nine weeks. Her outcomes with therapy I was very pleased with. Her DHI decreased to a 6 out of 100. ABC, ABC improved to 92.5%, FGA to a 30 out of 30, and SVQ to a 0.86. And most importantly were improvements in her activity and participation level activities. Um, she was able to care for her son without difficulties or without the symptoms. She was able to work and do all her home duties without difficulties or symptoms. She returned to yoga and walking for exercise, and she reported um, no dizziness. In the last session, she reported that there was no dizziness in the past week. So looking at some of these from a differential diagnosis perspective, I think hindsight's really 2020 that I probably should have paid more and inquired and asking a little bit more into the auditory symptoms, which may help have helped me differentiate between a semicircular canal dehiscence and something like migraine-associated dizziness or vestibular neuritis. So that's the end of my part. I'm going to pass it on to uh, Laura Morris.
Laura. Okay, I'm here. Um, I have a case that is um, also very unusual. Um, my case was a 54-year-old high school math teacher, um, super active, in great health, had a very supportive family, um, started to have a little bit of cardiac symptoms and um, was found to have a significant aortic aneurysm. Um, and he underwent repair of the aneurysm and um, came to see me four weeks after. So when he came into my office, um, his, his diagnosis um, was dizziness and imbalance. Um, and in a, as I started to interview him, um, the, the symptoms that he described was um, difficulty reading, difficulty being able to scan a room. Um, he was a teacher, so being able to you know, look around the room and see his students uh, was really hard, and he felt off balance. Um, I, I did an oculomotor screen of him and found something um, very unusual and not what I expected at all. Uh, what, what I found was that his um, vestibular ocular reflex was intact, his, um, his dynamic um, visual acuity score was normal, he had um, no um, uh, head impulse test that was positive, all of that was fine, his smooth pursuit was intact, his VOR suppression was intact, and um, Virgins was intact. Um, what was not intact um, was his psychotic eye movements, um, and, and those were painfully, painfully slow. Um, he had a very difficult time being able to turn his head and turn his eyes in order to um, get onto a target, um, and, and any kind of saccades that you would need for reading were um, present, but, in, but just very, very slow. Um, this made, obviously, um, function difficult. Um, so my initial, <laughs> uh, my initial reaction was to run into the other room, well, not run, walk quickly into the other room and look up anything I could find on this subject. And there actually um, was some um, information that I could put my hands on quickly um, and, and just you know, sort of make sure that this was something that, that somebody else had seen at some point. And it turns out that there are two papers on the subject that I found after the, um, after the first session. Um, one of them is by Solomon in the Annals of Neurology in 2008 called Psychotic Palsy After Cardiac Surgery, Characteristics and Pathogenesis. And the other article is by Eggers, and it's actually um, it's in Neurology in 2008, um, and it's called Selective Psychotic Palsy After Cardiac Surgery. So they're very um, similar papers that describe this exact problem. Um, uh, once I um, took a look at the patient that first day, I then realized that none of my typical outcome measures were going to be appropriate um, beyond basic gait and balance things. So I needed to come up with some objective way of um, monitoring this patient's um, recovery. So I attempted um, the King-Devic test or King-Devic test, depending on 
tomato or tomato, and uh, he was unable to um, perform that test at that time if, initially. Um, so instead, I, um, I used a, a timed reading sample, um, and I was able to do that initially and then, and then monthly to record his progress. And then I also um, just made up a psychotic um, eye movement test in which I had the patient stand arm's length away from the wall and put two targets three feet apart. And what I asked him to do is um, have his head and his eyes um, pointed at one target and then, um, and then let me know when his eyes had reached, the, when he could see the second target. Um, obviously, this is a clinical test that I did, uh, but it gave me some um, interesting information. Initially, it took him a full 30 seconds to go um, from the left target to the right target. I'm sorry, a full seven seconds to go from the left target to the right target, and um, a full four seconds to go from the left target to the from the right target to the left target. So seven left to right, and four right to left. Um, so that was what I used for my initial outcome measures to look at his um, psychotic eye movements. Uh, functionally, um, he scored an 18 out of 30 on the functional gait assessment. Um, he had difficulty with head turns and gait. As you can imagine, his eyes lagged behind his head, so that made um, head turns difficult. Um, he had trouble turning around and with obstacle negotiation because it took him a long time to get his eyes focused on whatever it was he was um, you know, stepping over the steps and things was difficult. His static balance was fine. Um, with, with dynamic balance, um, again, he had any, um, any head turns caused um, postural instability. Um, functionally, he was unable to read. Um, he was unable to drive. He had a lot of difficulty with ADLs just by, just by virtue of not being able to get his eyes on the, whatever it was he was trying to do. Um, moving about the kitchen was difficult, buttoning his shirt, uh, things like that. Uh, he had a, a very difficult time when he entered a room because uh, it took him so long to get his head and his eyes to match up to see what was happening in the room. If you can imagine, I mean, we use psychotic eye movements to do everything. And um, so those things were difficult for him. Obviously, um, in community environments, uh, he couldn't visually scan, um, so m making his way around was difficult. So what did I do for intervention? Um, the two articles that I mentioned say nothing about um, his actual psychotic eye movements improving. Um, it, it says nothing about any of, these, of the patients who have been written up um, having rehab. So um, so what, what I was doing was just using the knowledge that I have um, on eye-head coordination to come up with a plan for his care. Um, so the first thing I did was um, have him utilize his intact systems. So he used um, target following during gait. So I would have him actually like put his thumb up um, sort of uh, below his, um, you know, below horizontal a little bit, and then um, have him turn his eyes and his thumb together to visually scan, um, basically using Smooth Pursuit to, um, to assist in visually scanning. 
Um, and he also developed a, a compensatory technique in which he would turn his head very quickly past where he wanted to see, and then his eyes would lag behind. They would land on what he wanted to see, and then he would turn his eyes back to the target. So it was a, it's a uh, compensatory technique that he was able to use to um, get his eyes on a target. We did work on psychotic um, tasks because I, I didn't know for sure if, if his saccades would improve or not. Um, we started with large words for reading and, and he practiced every day for as long as he could stand it. Um, and we did some visually, visual scanning um, in simple environments where he wasn't having to turn his eyes or his head very far. Um, we also worked on using his peripheral vision to help manage um, complex environments um, because they, you know, that would help him gain more information about his environment without having to um, um, turn his head too much. Over time, uh, we progressed to smaller fonts during reading um, and doing actual head turns and gait and trying to get his eyes to stay along with his head. Um, we did a lot of dynamic standing tasks that included reaching and eye head movements. Um, and we did some driving simulation. Um, this was mostly because he was very motivated to drive again. I was not sure that he would ever be ready or safe to drive, but um, I wanted him to uh, work toward what his goals were. And so we did lots of things that um, simulated driving. Um, and we also worked on in um, complex environments um, with busy backgrounds so that he would he could learn to manage in those environments. Um, so I saw him for 14 weeks. Initially I saw him for two times a week and then I cut down to one time a week once he got the hang of what we were doing. Um, over time, he returned to work as a teacher. Um, he, had, he actually had an assistant teacher that helped him um, in his classes initially. Um, and, and he reported that that worked out great. Uh, he, had, he still had difficulty visually scanning the room, and so sometimes it was difficult for him to see if a, if a student had a question. Um, he, he reported right until the end that walking around the campus and in the hallways at school were really difficult because students would um, say, you know, hi, Mr. Bill, hi, Mr. Bill, and he, he wouldn't be able to tell um, who, who said hi to him until they were long gone because by the time he got his eyes in his head to the um, student, they had, you know, likely walked past him. Um, he ended up being able to read at, at what he described as a functional speed. Um, it was nothing like what he read before, but at least he got to the point where he could read. Um, he did use some um, techniques like a, a envelope at the bottom of the line just to help make um, his saccadic eye movements a little less um, um, complex. But um, other than that, he, he was able to go back to doing some reading. Um, that psychotic task that I talked about in the beginning, um, I repeated, and by the end, um, he was able to do 1.5 seconds um, going from left to right, and one second going from right to left, uh, which was a huge improvement from where he started. Um, and again, whether that was because I actually made a change in his 
ability to make a psychotic eye movement, I don't know. Uh, what I was concerned about was could I get him to use what he had functionally and efficiently. Um, so, you know, the movement that I was asking him to do involved head and eye movements, and I think he likely got just much better at being able to coordinate the two. Um, statically and dynamically, he reported by the end that his balance was better than before, um, and, and he certainly got to be very good at that. Um, his uh, functional gait assessment score improved from 18 out of 30 to 28 out of 30, um, with head turns still being his biggest problem. Um, he was exercising regularly at the gym, and, um, and, and he did hope to drive eventually. I don't know if he was ever going to get there, but I wasn't going to be the one to tell him, you never will. Um, I just said, you know, you're not ready yet. Um, so one question is, you know, why such success? How did he do, why did he do so well? And part of it, I think, was because he had incredible determination. Um, he loved his work and was desperate to get back to it. And so he was working really, really hard at his therapy in order to get back to what he loved to do. Um, he always had a physically active lifestyle, and he continued to be physically active even when his world was very unclear to him. Um, he had a very good outlook. He was a very positive person, and he had a great sense of humor, and I think this helped him a lot. Um, he was also very disciplined and was willing to keep doing the, you know, the amount of practice that it took to develop these new skills. Um, and I would, you know, I would say that they're fairly boring to repeat over and over and over again, but he did it because he wanted to be better. Um, he also had a very supportive wife and um, kids, and I think that also helps tremendously. Um, so really, what when you talk about management of these kinds of patients, one of the first things that I think is important to look at is what is the static status of his eye movements based on the five major classes of eye movements. And those five major classes are saccades, smooth pursuit, vergence, the vestibular ocular reflex, and the optokinetic system. And so, um, you know, I looked at those systems and said, okay, what, what impairments does he have? And what impairments does he not have? And then, and then, um, are those impairments permanent, or is there uh, potential for improvement? Um, and in his case, we didn't know if there was potential and improvement in his actual saccadic eye movements. But I did think, at the very least, I could make a difference in how well he coordinated his eye and head movements. Um, it's important to. Uh, when you're when you're thinking about what to do with a patient like this, to think about um, giving the patient compensatory techniques that, in the short term, will help them function. Because the quicker somebody gets back to function, the better. And then looking at um, neuro neuromuscular re-education techniques and um, a lot of practice to help improve um, the the specific oculomotor or vestibular functions that you are trying to improve. So I think a balanced approach of giving somebody compensatory techniques so that they can make it through their day, and then at the same time working on the true impairments and, and improving those um, is a good way to um, work, work at things. 
Um, it's important to consider the evidence, but you know, in some of these cases, there is no evidence. There was absolutely no evidence for this patient's um, rehab. All I knew for sure was that this this um, disorder existed, and 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 a little bit about why. Um, it's really important when we're working with patients like this that you're aware of what mechanism that you're employing. Um, you know, I, I did not need to work on adaptation with this patient because his vestibular ocular reflex was intact. Um, but, but, but knowing that, you know, I was, I was using similar techniques that we use with other vestibular patients and employing them for a novel case um, is important. And I think that's it for me. Um, next is Janine. And so we... Right. Okay. Sorry. Awesome cases. Awesome cases. So my case is a 64-year-old man who slipped and fell on hard on the ice and landed on his left side and his left knee. Um, and initially, over about a three-day period of time, started noticing increasing dizziness to the point that he had a very severe vestibular crisis with vomiting and visiting the emergency department. Um, at the emergency department, all serious causes were ruled out, and benign positional vertigo was suspected. And at that time, an epilepsy was performed. Um, five days later, he was referred to an audiologist for benign positional vertigo treatment. Um, in reviewing the notes that I got, um, he was noted to have a mild geotrophic direction changing nystagmus that was more intense on the left. Um, however, the nystagmus um, persisted and was overall, when you read, read the notes, was weak as far as the overall intensity of it. Um, he was treated for possible horizontal canal BTBV, um, and, but his symptoms persisted, and by day nine, um, they tried to switch to treating the other side um, and still without much success. Two weeks later, following the onset of his um, injury, because of his persistent dizziness, a full um, VNG was completed. Um, and his, all his central findings for gaze, saccade, and swing pursuit were normal. Positionally, he was found to have some square wave jerks um, with fixation removed only. And he was noted to have a mixed kind of up and apogeotrophic uh, direction change in nystagmus that was primarily asymptomatic. And when it and it was documented as a mild nystagmus at about two to three degrees per second. And he did hall pipe testing and roll testing um, was negative for any paroxysmal nystagmus or something consistent with benign positional vertigo. Caloric testing did reveal a 48% left unilateral weakness. Um, with a significant directional preponderance. The overall interpretation from the ideologist was that he had a documented left unilateral hyperfunction, and his positional nystagmus was non-localizing, meaning it could have um, suggested central or peripheral. And she noted that square wave jerks were suggestive of possible CNS dysfunction. Um, at that point, um, he was referred to physical therapy for vestibular rehabilitation and to monitor and treat for possible benign positional vertigo. The doctor, given the findings that he found, um, started him on prednisone with a diagnosis of, at that point, of viral neuritis. Um, and what I find when I'm looking at a patient uh, that's coming to me from audiology is very often 
it is important for us as physical therapists to be able to look at the VNG testing and analyze exactly, you know, what's the quality of that um, report and do we understand the significance of the report as far as it's going to be um, for us to understand it. So we, we know that um, the significance of positional nystagmus is that it should be above 5 degrees per second, which is considered strong, or if it is more milder, it needs to be in multiple positions in order for it to be considered significant. There is a number of nystagmus that with the advent of infrared goggles, um, we as physical therapists will be identifying and we need to understand there is a level of nystagmus that is considered significant and not significant. Um, and so the positional nystagmus in this man on his VNG testing would be considered non-localizing, would have to be viewed with respect to the rest of the testing. Um, with square wave jerks, um, criteria is often that it needs to be greater than 2 degrees 2 per second and present at all times with vision present um, independent of the position. So by this definition, actually his square wave jerks were not significant. They were not in room light and they were not persistent at a 2 per second um, frequency. So this would not have been considered significant by a number of the criteria that are established. Um, the caloric test is definitely highly significant for a unilateral hypofunction. And so from his initial presentation, he's very much looking like a vestibular neuritis patient. When I did my examination on the dizziness handicap inventory, he scored with severe and 84 out of 100. And his current dizziness subjectively rated on a visual analog scale is 5 out of 10. Past medical history was significant for a total knee replacement on his right. Um, sinusitis, allergies, and sleep apnea. He does have a long history of motion sickness vulnerabilities, and I find that an important quality that we should identify as physical therapists, as vestibular therapists, because um, very often someone with a vulnerability of motion sickness is more difficult to work with, um, can be much more sensitive, and I find um, healing times perhaps a little bit more protracted um, than someone without that history. Um, and it's also an, an important factor that sometimes suggests um, a possibility of it's been associated with patients with migraine. Um, he denies any headaches or any hearing difficulties, which we're always looking for any kind of comorbidity or any kind of unstable lesion as we look at someone who's coming in with us with a significant unilateral loss. Are we the first person who's seen the start of an unstable lesion? Um, should be something that should be questioned um, if it's an early onset um, vestibular um, exacerbation. He does, does have some chronic neck stiffness that's exacerbated since his fall. Um, unable to tolerate any normal exercise, um, in which he was usually very active with racquetball and golfing and a number of um, recreational activities, which he was not back. And at the time I first saw him, he was not back to work um, at a desk job. Um, his initial testing for clinical impairments showed elevated sway in Romberg. Um, no spontaneous or gaze evoked nystagmus in room light and with fixation removed. His smooth pursuit and saccades were normal quality, and I was also looking for his tolerance, and his tolerance was normal. He had a positive head impulse test with corrective saccades to the left, consistent with that left unilateral hypofunction, and his dynamic visual acuity was with a six-line loss of visual acuity, um, which, is a, which is, again, consistent with the unilateral loss. He had a positive after head shake, six beats to the right. Um, his cervical range of motion was within normal limits with some painful um, end fields noted. Um, his sitting vertebral artery screen, you know, was not provocative of any kind of symptoms. 
And on the clinical test for sensory interaction on balance, he is falling in conditions where he must rely on his vestibular system. His gait was kind of classic vestibular, reduced velocity, on-block maneuvering, and frequent wall and veer touch. Um, his um, functional gait assessment was within fall risk criteria at 17 out of 30, where scores below 23 reflect heightened fall risk. Um, his initial presentation um, under the infrared goggles showed no evidence of a gaze of nystagmus. Um, the positional testing, there was some inconsistent square waves as the audiologist had looked at. And he primarily had an asymptomatic right beating nystagmus, especially when he was on his left side. Um, there was no evidence of benign position vertigo, even to additional BPV testing, such as bow and lean, roll testing, um, so no indication of BPV. He was testing with quite a high uh, motion sensitivity, with a motion sensitivity quotient of 30%, which was kind of more generalized, uh, without evidence of, uh, again, of anything of benign position vertigo. So for his initial assessment, a poorly compensated acute unilateral loss, with very vestibular-specific impairments and disability, um, including that abnormal head impulse test, dynamic visual acuity, and the, the loss of balance under vestibular conditions. His presentation was certainly um, consistent with um, vestibular neuritis. However, you can't, I can't rule out that this is the early presentation of an unstable lesion, such as Meniere's or remotely migraine. Um, I anticipated for follow-up to progress in adaptation, habituation, sensory balance retraining program, and gait retraining program. His initial um, therapy was uh, VOR times one at near and far, um, learning how to ground um, to improve his stabilization and, and kind of uptraining his use of somatosensory information. Um, and then gait with increasing head motions and increasing his fitness. He, Three weeks following, he was much improved, drove independently to his appointment. He had talked that he had returned to work. His neck was still slightly tight, um, with increasing complaints of headaches, severe cranial base tightness, and um, light traction was relieving. Um, so I actually started doing some, some light cervical intervention at the same time. Um, computerized dynamic visual acuity testing um, showing a log bar deficit of 0.2 to the left and 0.1 to the right. Core normal is less than 0.15, um, so still a little bit elevated on his left um, hypofunctioning side. Gaze stabilization had increased 115 degrees per second to the left um, to the right and then 96 degrees per second um, to the left, um, where values we know are greater than 80 um, for the capacity to drive. Um, he was given some home exercise programs, gentle um, cervical range of motion, some posture retraining to get him out of his forward head, increase the VOR um, exercises with narrowing base of support, um, increasing eyes closed demands even with narrowing base of support, and increasing demands even when he's walking. Um, on his second follow-up, which is now about four weeks um, post his injury, he comes back describing a horrific week, which with what he thought was stomach flu, throwing up, dizziness and vertigo, as intense as his initial presentation um, where he went to the emergency department and he said that he was in bed for a three-day period of time. His ear was full with a questionable change in hearing, but he had gone to his doctor and had confirmed a stable hearing um, just the day before my appointment. He had severe neck pain and head fullness. He denied any headache or migraine history, but did admit to a lifelong history of visual phenomenon that can last for hours. I often find that patients are not good at um, identifying whether they have migraine involvement, and very often ocular migraine um, is often associated with someone who could be going on to develop um, 
of a vestibular migraine presentation. He does admit to definite light and sound sensitivity during his severe exacerbation. And certainly, if you're trying to build a case for a possible migraine involvement, you'd want to be looking for what we would call migraine travelers or things that go with migraine, such as light and sound sensitivity. Um, when I did his infrared examination on this day, instead of seeing this mild direction fixed nystagmus with kind of diffuse dizziness, he had this severe apogeotrophic direction change in nystagmus on his roll testing. Um, but then in supine, he had a marked upbeating. And if I put him in prone or in the bow testing with his head down, it would reverse to a downbeat. So he basically had multi-directional um, nystagmus both up and down. Um, and not and BPV could not account for this at this point. Um, left posterior canal, in his left exhalpike, there was a possible torsional component to the initial presentation, um, which could have been interpreted um, or supportive of benign positional vertigo. Um, for which we did a cavalry positioning, however, there was no effect on that. Um, so his presentation at this point is more supportive and consistent with vestibular migraine um, because he's got this direction change in stagnus that cannot be accounted for with benign vertigo. He's got migraine travelers of light and sound sensitivity. He's got a past history of episodic ocular, what could be consistent with ocular migraines. And again, this positional stagnus that cannot be accounted for with benign positional vertigo. He was referred for a neurologist at this time, um, and I began some migraine education as far as um, particularly the power of a migraine to create dizziness, which is usually something that needs to be explained to a patient. Um, and I started talking about what are the conservative treatment strategies that can be utilized to control migraine, including the role of diet, exercise, pacing, and hydration. Um, and his treatment went on hold pending medical stabilization of his acute migraine. Um, and what I just think we need to recognize as physical therapists is the power of migraine is quite amazing um, as far as what kind of findings you can see. The literature does support that you can see central findings of impaired smooth pursuit. You can see peripheral vestibular asymmetries, usually in the more mild category at 20 to 40 percent um, caloric weaknesses. Um, the nystagmus that has been associated with migraine is all across the board. As noted in a study done by Polensk and um, Tusa in 2010, where they noted that their migraine patients could present with spontaneous nystagmus, horizontal after head shake nystagmus, and positional nystagmus was noted in 100% of the cases. A large majority of the time, at least 76% of the time, that was sustained and without any degree of paroxysmal qualities. Um, there was direction changing and direction fixed, such as, um, and the direction changes, such as in this case. There's up and down beating and torsional that has been documented. So we know that a number of central findings and peripheral findings can be seen in cases of um, documented migraine. Um, he was placed on a migraine prophylactic and sent to some cervical-specific physical therapist, um, physical therapy um, due to the possible trigger and involvement with his neck. Um, he returned to my clinic four months later reporting that he wasn't floating anymore, but was still having some distinct positional dizziness especially when he looked up some blurry vision and some motion-provoked instability. His reassessment at that time showed some normal velocity and quality of his gait. His Romberg was normal, but he still was falling in the clinical test for sensory interaction and balance in five and six, the vestibular conditions. He no longer had a positive head impulse test, um, and his dynamic visual acuity was to a three-line loss um, versus a six-line loss, which it was initially. His cervical range of motion had improved following the therapy that he received. 
Um, there was no spontaneous or gaze evoked. Um, there was still a mild positive after head shake nystagmus um, of four beats. And now um, there is, and when I did his clinical examination with the infrared goggles at this point, he had a total resolve in that direction changing, alarming direction changing nystagmus that he'd had on the previous examination. And now showed a very classic left torsional left beat nystagmus of 20 second duration in the left six hall pike. Um, so he was significantly improved, but with definable benign positional vertigo, and then also with some incomplete compensation and healing for his left equilateral deficit, his migraine was stabilizing and his cervical complaints were normalizing. And so I recommended following up to stabilize his benign position vertigo and further advance some habituation adaptation and balancer training for the residual complaints that were going on. Um, at his follow-up, he was reporting that he was significantly better since the repositioning maneuver, but not back to his full wellness program. Um, he still had a subtle left beating after head shake nystagmus. His benign pinch vertigo was in remission per the Dick's health like testing and per subjective report. He was advancing his VOR times one. He was taught, you know, self-counter positioning principles should he experience any residual complaints. And in his final testing, he actually did finally test with his eyes very stable, which is, it's kind of amazing. And I almost think unless you actually see the videos, you wouldn't believe how much this man's eyes changed and how much um, this migraine can cause quite an alarming, huge degree of what looks like scary eye movement, you know, because we've got a lot of direction changing qualities, but also that um, he had to be tracked carefully because we know that benign disease vertigo has a higher incidence um, with patients who are experiencing migraines. So his final outcome was that his dizziness handicap inventory had cleared from an 84 to a 24. Um, his severity rating from a 5 to a 3, and he was back to his um, wellness program by the time we finished up his testing. His functional gait assessment was a 29 versus a 17. Um, he could stand in heel toe, both with eyes open and eyes closed. His single leg stance was back up to where it should be, and his he was able to stand under conditions where he must rely on his vestibular system with good motion tolerance. Um, and so the bottom line is kind of the take-home message, I think, that perhaps all these three cases, um, all these three presentations say is um, that you've got complicated cases that often might require some reassessment, some revisiting of the clinical findings, a careful understanding of the disabilities and the impairments that you're looking at, and that very often not only are you going to have to um, customize your treatment approaches, you may have to customize exactly how you're going to document the progress, such as Laura was showing. We're going to need to be searching the literature to understand, um, you know, what is going on with the different presentations that we're looking at. But there is going to be a hole that we're going to have to fill with our skills as a clinician and also with networking with other um, therapists. You know, and, and identifying the qualities of success like Laura did as far as the resiliency of the patient tapping into this patient's um, assets and, and looking for really uh, customizing to this patient's distinct impairments. Um, we certainly know that in today's world where benign position vertigo is more well, res well um, respected that there's a number of patients who therapists are calling the problem benign position vertigo where there is a lot of nystagmus that, and positional nystagmus that goes beyond benign position vertigo and had in my case I had treated just the benign position vertigo I would have been grossly insufficient in taking care of his case and in managing him. And had I just even identified just the unilateral deficiency and treated that, 
I would have also been insufficient had I not looked for evidence for the instability of the lesion and for a comorbidity that would, have, would require an interaction with the medical community and for medical stabilization. So these atypical cases can be both a diagnostic and treatment dilemma. We've got to listen very, very carefully to the history and the subjective complaints, which are going to be critical not only for our diagnosis, but for exactly how we're going to treat these specific impairments. Um, you need to be willing to do these reassessments. Um, and the clinical testing is going to be a very vital point. And I would actually advocate, um, advocate for the fact that our clinical testing that a physical therapist can offer can give some of the most key differential diagnosis pieces that can help a doctor properly care for a patient. Um, so our role in these cases are very strong. Um, our role in decreasing disability and identifying these cases and getting the proper medical care is going to be very high. And with atypical cases, we're going to have to express a high degree of skill, creative customization of exercise programs and progressions, and even um, where the evidence is lacking. And so with difficult cases, be willing to ask colleagues, be willing to go to the vestibular SIG resources, such as the neuropt.org, identify mentors in your field, and really be willing to pull out the creative stops to customize for these patients, because there is a vital role that we play in minimizing disability and optimizing their recovery for these complicated issues that medicine really has a lot of holes with. And so with that, I will give it back to Rachel for the sign-off. Thank you so much, Laura and Janine, for your input. Um, it was a great presentation, and the reason we wanted to do a podcast was to have it available for those who were unable to attend. Um, please see the Vestibular SIG website for other podcasts and other great information. Again, thanks again, and take care.